Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster, it must be said in current times, as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on the topic of leadership. I am Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Paul Crabtree. Paul is the owner of Waste Paper Solutions, a confidential waste disposal and paper recycling company based in Mayfield, East Sussex. Paul, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Hi Scott, many thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time to, of course, join us on the programme. Now, Paul, the purpose of this discussion is really to understand your take on leadership. So if we dive straight into that, what does that word leader actually mean to you? How does it really resonate? Uh, Well, I think it's very important as uh, somebody who owns a business to um, be uh, very open to your employees and be someone that is very approachable. Um, I think that that's really come into play certainly over the last couple of months as as strange situations have developed where, um, you know, rather than just being somebody that dictates how the business runs from, uh, you know, from a leader point of view, it's actually being a, a, a voice and a sounding board for for people that, that work for you to actually become able to speak to you and and uh, and listen to those and see how the company is actually progressing forward. Um, everything that's happened over the past few weeks has really amplified that because we obviously not only do we have the day to day running of our company to uh, to consider under underneath the, the term leadership, but we've also got to ensure that our staff are looked after and also uh, made to feel uh, safe and valued in the current situation. It's one form of people management, I suppose, really, isn't it, uh, Paul? Uh, Being able to, of course, manage people's concerns and just make sure that they are, of course, in the right headspace in terms of their overall well-being as well. And there's a real heightened sense of that uh, during this time. But that does come with its pressures, doesn't it? Not only does a leader have to be able to sort of keep the communication channels open in that regard, but also provide vital reassurance in the same way. And when there's so much uncertainty... And the leader at the top of it all may not necessarily know that much more than the people around them. It can be quite a pressurising situation, that can't it? Being having to manage that, it's absolutely pressurising because um, it doesn't take away any of the responsibility from the role. The fact that you may not have any more information than, than anybody else, and that is absolutely correct at the moment because we are taking everything day to day um, and you know ordinarily before all the all this situation uh, was in play we would have a clear view of where we are where we're going the roles for our staff um, and of course now everything's changed uh, and it's uh, it's very difficult to um, to keep things moving yourself as well as uh, you know keep in mind uh, like you say the well-being and the and uh, voicing concerns of your your staff and everybody that looks up to you and from a leadership point of view has the response from staff and those around you during this time been a source of inspiration because we've heard a great deal uh, from various business leaders about how the people around them have just mucked in, whether they've had to continue to work on site or whether they've had to adapt to remote working. They've just really, really got on with it without complaint. And that's really sort of helped them develop and keep the business ticking over. And there's been some real positives to take from that in the sense that it's brought everyone that little bit closer together. Do you find yourself um, aligning with uh, those views as well from your own experiences, Paul, at uh, your own business? 
A hundred percent. I think that that's, uh, that's that's exactly right. It's not only has it brought people closer together in general this situation, but actually it has gelled everybody together with, within certainly within our company because um, it, it, you have to. It, it's a strange thing where, where although everybody is now remote working and we are not in physical contact with each other. We actually seem to be um, conversing on on a different level that wasn't perhaps there before because everybody would just come in and have their head down and, and be focused on work. And now, obviously, having to adapt and um, you know, you, there are certain things that you just have to evolve with and 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 make it all work. And actually, it's amazing that that people are like I say, pulling together and really, rather than just looking for um, an excuse or, or a, you know, a way not to get things done, people are actually going that extra bit further to, to, to work around the situation, uh, the inconveniences, and, and really get in and, and uh, be productive with stuff. And actually, it's, it's really highlighted a lot of things for us when we come back. We're hoping to be able to you know, keep a lot of that in play once everything is uh, back to normal. People are taking really their own form of leadership um, on, aren't they? In uh, that respect, uh, being independent and really plugging away for the uh, for the good of the business. And I think um, in the future as well. I mean, there are some real positives to take from the sense that times of adversity really brought out the best um, in people. Um, exactly right. And if we um, begin to think about the future, just for um, a moment, um, Paul. Um, in your case, do you think the experience of managing a crisis such as this is going to benefit you as a leader in the long run as well? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it makes everybody a bit more rounded. I think it adds another dimension into to what you can cope with. Um, it shows adaptability. It takes you out of your comfort zone. Um, you, you know, without nobody's had a choice in that. We've all had to kind of deal with it in our own way. Um, and I think as a business leader, it's you know all the you know the, the horribleness of it aside, it's quite an exciting opportunity to be able to. Um, what I've been able to do personally is step out a little bit from from the day to day and have a look in and, and evaluate everything. And to be able to put yourself in that position is quite a gift because regardless of how you come out of this, there's, there's not much opportunity in the day-to-day running of a business to be able to have that little pause, um, take a breath, reevaluate everything and, and have a look at actually how, how you carry yourself and your business on a day-to-day. Mm, I think um, that's um, absolutely right, uh, Paul, uh, for sure. And based upon the experience um, that you've had in not just managing this crisis, but also all of the years that you've um, had in business as well, if you were to actually give some advice to somebody who was maybe about to start their first day in a leadership or a director role, what sort of advice would you give them based upon that experience that you've had? Uh, it would be to keep your staff involved as much as possible in, in, in everything, if possible. I mean, obviously, with larger corporate companies where you're not on perhaps a day-to-day basis and you have people spread over different offices, it can be quite tricky. But for us, we're all under one environment. But really, the one thing that we've pushed from, from day one, and we've grown slowly, you know, one member of staff at a time, um, is, is that real personal involvement with everybody. Um, so, and that's really helped us through this situation because where people are now working remotely, we have uh, that a close bond with all our staff. And actually, there's not many areas of running my business that the staff are not included in. Um, and I appreciate that that's, that's much easier to do on a, on a smaller scale. But if your staff 
feel involved in in the business. They're much more invested in it. So that when mm. a situation comes in like this where they are tested and where there's a lot of um, trust involved in the situation between staff and uh, leaders, company owners, because, you know, we're not in the same environment. We're not there to... Um, you know, monitor working and everything. Everybody is running under their own steam, as you touched on earlier. People have had to step up to the plate and, and really um, come out of themselves. And I, I really think that's quite important in any business, even before this, to be able to feel for your staff to feel that they are important within, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but they've they become more invested. And if you need that extra from them, they might, you're more likely to get that. Um, through such situations as this, then, then if you just you know pay pay the wage and get people to do the job and uh, and just really run it like a machine. I think that's absolutely right. And I think showing that humility and um, openness um, as a leader to really bring people with you in that sense, it does make them far more invested. And those leaders that have taken the time to do that will certainly be reaping the uh, the benefits now. And as you've said already, Paul, um, their response uh, during this time has certainly been a source of inspiration to yourself. But if we talk about inspiration just a little bit um, in a little bit more focus now, who would you say have been the people who've had the biggest and most significant impact on you as you've developed through your career? People that maybe you've worked with or looked up to during your lifetime? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, when we first started out in business, uh, my, you know, I looked up to people like Richard Branson. I love this diversification in, in, in what they tried to do and the enthusiasm and heart and passion that they've brought to everything. That, to me, is super important. It, it's something that we carry into the office every single day um, that stayed with me, you know, even through the lockdown period. It's it's coming into the office daily. It's showing up. It's having passion for what you're doing. And I think that really comes through to your staff and to your customers as well. Um, And that is a very important part of leadership. If if you're not fully invested yourself in what what you're doing and committed and and believe in what you're doing on on a very uh, high level, then then I think that you're not going to succeed in every aspect that you want to. So um, certainly Richard Brands, I mean, things change, you know, obviously it's not had such great publicity of late, but the actual principles behind it and the ideals behind, uh, you know, his setting up a business was to me a great inspiration. Richard Branson certainly is um, a fantastic example there, Paul. And I think um, he'd actually be really encouraged by um, how the staff at Waste Paper Solutions in particular have certainly reacted um, during uh, this time of crisis. I don't think he could really ask uh, for anybody to do um, any much more himself than uh, people have done uh, for you, um, if you don't mind me, of course, chipping in with that. Thank you. It's fantastic. And if we continue to think about the future and how people are going to continue to respond to this as we begin to move through this pandemic and hopefully out of the other side, Paul. And what do you envision um, yourself and the business achieving in that time, not just in getting through uh, COVID-19 over the next uh, 12 months, hopefully it will just be confined to that period, but also for beyond the pandemic as well. And when we begin to really, really come out of the other side of this. Yeah, so a lot of our business focus has shifted, um, but, but mainly over the past sort of month, because um, without going into too much detail, you know, about our actual vision for, for our particular business, but just in, in leadership and business in general, the first 
six weeks, I think, of lockdown was um, was tricky. Nobody really knew what was going on. It was all very new. Um, we, we came into it. We were using systems that we weren't particularly um, uh, competent at, you know, such as uh, online video conferencing and, and lack of travel and not being able to get into places. Um, and that was a real stumbling block for the first few weeks. But I think the past month, um, everybody's kind of settled into a routine. We understand now that we can use different tools and, and we can run the business on a day-to-day basis in, in a much more efficient way than we were before. And that now, there, there seems to have been a pivot point in lockdown, not just for our company, but for, for pretty much all the other business owners that I speak to on a, on a regular basis. And that this, this is becoming the new normal. So coming out of lockdown for us, obviously, it's going to be about, um, you know, maintaining the customer base that we had before uh, all this happened. Um, it's growing our customer base, obviously, when we come out as well. But it's actually our focus at the moment and, and for the first few weeks as we hopefully come out of this sooner rather than later is talking to our customers on a, on a, a very personal level and understanding what their needs are going forward. Because without our customers, we don't have a business. You know, 90% of our customer database is, is, is commercial and they've all been closed for the past two months. So we don't have, uh, you know, much of a business at the moment. We're just sort of, you know, laying dormant, waiting until we can we can come back and, and service everybody, hopefully as before. But there are going to be casualties. We're going to have lost a lot of our customer base and businesses that have gone under. So, um, you know, I think reacting to everything that's happened and developing over the past few weeks into a, a much more efficient company uh, is the way that we are going to, that's going to be our foundation for going forward. This is kind of like a pause reset for waste paper solutions. So, um, you, you know, everything, this is almost like ground zero now and we're going to build on what we had before, but this is kind of like a restart in how we approach our customers and, and how we uh, maintain them and also making, um, you know, contingencies for anything that, that could happen like this in the future. We need to be better prepared and, and make sure that we are safeguarded and that um, we can still look after everybody customer-wise and staff-wise, should a situation similar arise. Exactly. We can only embrace this um, now as um, not just only, of course, a terrible time that we've managed to overcome, but also a learning experience as well, because that, of course, shows some fantastic leadership in and of itself there. And you know what I think, Paul? I think it would actually be fantastic at some point in the next year when we start to see these changes coming about if we could actually catch up and have you back on the program just to see how the uh, the business is getting on and what sorts of changes we've really seen not just within the business but also within the uh, the marketplace um, as well yeah of course that would be uh, we'd be more than happy to do that and we'd be uh, it'd be great to uh, like you say reassess and have this conversation again and see how things have progressed I think so as well, Paul. It's um, a shame really that we're, um, of course, just about out of time on today's programme. I could discuss this uh, very much all day. But um, I have to say thank you ever so much once again for taking the time to join us on uh, the air today. It's been um, a thoroughly informative and also a really enjoyable experience. A real, real pleasure. So um, thanks again for coming on. Many thanks, Scott. Thanks for talking. And do take care and do stay safe, of course, with everything still uh, going on in the meantime, for sure. Thanks very much indeed.
That was Paul Crabtree, owner of Waste Paper Solutions speaking. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, he rose to prominence as one of the most notable politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August of 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm 
commerce, and I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. 
hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. 
So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up 
uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. 
I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, 
led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one key key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakira Starmer's 
major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.